Hello, hello everyone. This is Christian Massar again with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Episode number 30. That's pretty exciting stuff. So but today what we're going to be talking about, what I'm going to be looking at, is preaching to the northern nations. The Christianization of the Norse lands. So this is a process that did not happen very quickly. It was a process, like many other things, the Christianization of Scandinavia was a process rather than a quick one-time event. And during this process, the old traditional Norse religion and the new faith interacted in ways that blurred the many way, many differences between them. A quote-unquote pure Christianity had a hard time spreading in this environment, and Christians took a number of actions to help their faith grow. Uh, these actions included legislation and putting belief, Christian beliefs into a Norse context. In addition to looking at some of these conversion methods, we'll also show how Christianity appeared in Norse sagas after conversion. And before we get into the episode itself, I want to give a quick little message. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast on Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep Historical Thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. Thanks a lot, and let's get back to the episode. Christian conversion was essential to the establishment of the Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish kingdoms, according to Burgett and Peter Sawyer. But each had different conversion histories. Norway's conversion is attributed to its, quote, missionary kings, Olag Tryggvason and Olav Haraldsson. Both these kings were crucial to Norway's natural, national narrative in that they helped found an independent country, even though they suffered defeat from the Danes. And after his death in 1030, Olaf Haraldsson became a popular saint across Scandinavia. Iceland, a Norwegian colony, didn't have an easy conversion period. Christianity became prominent there in the, in the 990s, and after heavy-handed missionary techniques, hostage-taking, and skirmishes between the two faiths, Iceland was finally converted at the turn of the millennium by the decision of an Althing, or a council. Harald Bluetooth, the king of the Danes, supposedly witnessed a Christian priest named Popo hold a hot iron and suffer no harm. The king was convinced of Christianity's truth, accepted baptism in 965, and forbade Danes, and forbade Danes to worship the Norse gods. Elias Orman says that Sweden and eastern Scandinavia were converted more slowly, judging by, judging by the long, lukewarm response to Christianity and prolonged pagan practices. Bridget and Peter Sawyer also mentioned Uppsala, a major center for the Norse, Norse paganism in Sweden. And pagan practices did not stop here around 1080. At, at what point should we say that a Scandinavian region was considered completely converted. Um, the lingering of paganism can make that a hard question to answer, and we'll look at a little bit of this later on. But Anders Winroth talks about the, quote, official or institution conversions of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. 
he looks specifically at when, quote, bishops first crowned Scandinavian kings. According to him, this finalized the relationships between church and, and ruler. According to this definition, Norway completely converted. In 1163 or 1164, Denmark was officially Christianized by 1170. Winroth suggests that this happened in Sweden around 1210, though others believe that Sweden was fully Christian by the start of the 12th century. So there is some disagreement on this. And I think that this is a convenient uh, convenient way to say officially converted. Uh, for example, if we look at the Christianization of Kiev and the Rus in 988, so of course this is when Kiev and the Rus became officially Christian, yes, but would there be individuals who still kept to the pre-Christian traditions? Of course, I'm sure that there, there would be. And just because a state may officially convert to Christianity doesn't mean that the people will automatically follow suit with that. But this idea of an official or an institutional conversion is a convenient way of tracking Christianity's progress throughout Scandinavia while still needing to remember that not everybody in that area would automatically be converted or convinced of Christianity by that time. Christianity was advantageous to Norse rulers in numerous ways. The Christian priesthood was a, quote, international brotherhood that connected Scandinavia with the rest of the world, or at least um, uh, with, much, with Europe, and also connected them with the, quote, most powerful rulers of Europe. This brought prestige to the Norse kingdoms and rulers, and visually striking churches and riches of Christendom would make conversion more attractive. Winroth suggests that if Norse rulers were able to obtain such splendid things and build marvelous churches, people might be more likely to follow them. This helps support Winroth's claim that Christianity was a more successful building, community-building religion than Norse paganism. He mentions that both Harald Bluetooth and a non-Viking ruler, Prince Vladimir of Kiev and Rus, they, they both tried to strengthen communal cohesion using non-Christian religion. But ultimately, only Christianity helped them achieve this. Christianity was different in that godparents were necessary at baptism. This allowed common converts to form uh, close relationships with each other, but rulers were also able to take advantage of such connections with foreign kings. In the early 1000s, Olaf Haraldsson became the godfather of Eivind, who was likely a Norwegian chieftain. Eivind had his own relationship with Ethelred in, in England, and Olaf was able to share this connection upon his godson's baptism. Christian Norse kings also gained increased central control. Because of the church, illegitimate sons were forbidden from ruling the Norse kingdoms. This made the kingdoms more politically stable by reducing the number of potential claimants to the throne, even though it wouldn't solve all problems uh, regarding problems with succession. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the church legitimized heirs through coronation. <clears throat> Rulers could also control who was baptized, for there were few Christian priests in Northern Europe. This restricted pagans in, from, uh, from forming religion-based relationships, especially when pagan rituals were banned. Yet, Christianity did not spread very easily throughout Scandinavia. There was an initial period of tolerance and or accommodation of pagan practices after conversion, leading to, as I said before, 
what might be called a lukewarm kind of Christianity. <clears throat> Widukind of Corve, a German chronicler and monk, complained in the 960s about Christian Denmark's lackluster faith around the time of Harold the Bluetooth's baptism. He said that even if the Danes were Christian, they still held on to worshipping idols and holding on to uh, pre-Christian rites. Widukind also said that Christian Danes believed that Jesus Christ was a god, but that he was a lesser deity. Jesus, Christianity's one true God in the form of God the Son, was reduced to simply a member of the Norse pantheon. Burgett and pa Peter Sawyer say that situations like this were common in the rest of Scandinavia during this half-hearted stage of conversion. Just after Iceland became Christian, Pre-Christian practices, such as the eating of horse meat, which was considered a pre-Christian sacrifice, and also the exposure of unwanted children, would still be done in secret, even though Christian law officially outlawed them. Some Christian Norse rulers simply legislated their faith upon the pagan population. We already saw how Iceland's religious fate was decided at an Althang, and that Harald Bluetooth forbade pagan worship. And as in Iceland, 13th century lawmakers in Gotland, modern-day Sweden, decreed that um, child exposure would be, would be banned. Elsa Mundal points to the medieval prohibition of Landvater worship, or the belief in and worship of land spirits. Uh, she points out that this was done in the medieval period, possibly indicating its continued practice after <clears throat> an, an official uh, conversion to Christianity. But as we also saw, and <laughs> as we see in history and also in modern times with certain things, legislation was not always effective. Yet legislation is useful to study as it is kind of an acid test for Christianization. Uh, if, the faith was, if the faith was legislated in a Norse kingdom or certain things were banned because of religion, contemporary writers considered that kingdom truly converted. But even if a Norse kingdom did officially Christianize, not everyone would immediately accept the new faith. I talked a bit about this earlier. Some practices may have stopped immediately, while others would continue. And while some churches sprang up quickly, it took much longer to administer parishes and start collecting tithes. Birgit Sawyer, Peter Sawyer, and Ian Wood say this, quote, Conversion and the acceptance of Christianity did not proceed at a uniform pace in all levels of society. Jarl Hakon of Lade, for example, held on to his pagan beliefs even after his Lord Harald Bluetooth converted. Reality was contrary to triumphant conversion narratives such as the saga of Olaf Tryggvason and the life of Ansgar, in which near-immediate conversion takes place on a <laughs> biblical scale. A pagan society's beliefs do not change this quickly, even if individuals do sincerely convert. Individuals will still have some fondness for the old ways, and they will likely not change just because their king says that they should. Christianization in Scandinavia was thus a prolonged process, not a one-time instant transformation. And, and I want to mention this here. I think it would be negligent not to <clears throat> mention this side. We often look at the... Uh, conversion of of a of a group of people or a conversion of a nation to uh, to Christianity or perhaps Islam as well in in the idea of we often can reduce it to well it was politically convenient 
um, you know, the Viking or the Norse kingdoms are, or the Norse rulers are converting to Christianity because it is politically convenient. It allows them to connect to the rest of Europe, <clears throat> allows them to build a more convenient and, and better um, political relationships, trade, and, and things like this. And we have a similar narrative um, when we talk about the conversion of Kiev and the Rus under uh, Prince Vladimir. But at, at the same time, and, and I think, and this is just me commenting on the moment here, uh, which can be perhaps harder to harder to research because we can't enter the mind of Oleg Trigvasan or someone else to see what they actually thought of the faith that they converted their nation to. But at the same time, when I'm talking about the personal belief and when a nation converts to Christianity, maybe not everybody in that area is going to convert to Christianity right away, right? So, but the same, the converse could be true too. When a king or ruler decides to convert to Christianity, we don't always want to just say that it was always a political decision. Um, we do need to consider the, the personal, uh, personal choice and personal <laughs> agency, I suppose, um, of this. So that is something that, again, that is harder to, harder to research, harder to quantify, and, and certainly political reasoning is, is, is valid to look at. But I think that it, it, we do need to also remember the possibility of actual personal and sincere conviction um, in the belief in a, in a, in a quote-unquote new faith. Uh, so I think that is something important. I just wanted to make that side note as well. So the idea that pagan practices continued in, in the, uh, even after official conversions in Scandinavia, then there was also the question of how to deal with the old rituals. Also, Mundell also notes that this was a common problem across Christendom's periphery regions. Mundell continues by saying that it could be difficult for one raised in a Norse mindset to accept the idea of Christ, since the Christian ideas of sin and salvation did not quite translate to, a, to Norse society or Norse um, social thinking. The Son of God also died helpless on a Roman cross. He didn't die gloriously in battle like a war hero or a Norse god at Ragnarok. So this is, these are two facts that, that uh, would make Christianity difficult to sort of, sort of tie in with, with Norse society and become accepted. So the, these are two barriers. Yet Christian missionaries could tie their lord to the narrative of Odin, who was the head of the Norse pantheon. Odin hanged himself on a tree to gain wisdom and become more powerful. Parallels could be drawn between Christ's death for humans, humankind's spiritual good and Odin's act of self-sacrifice. Christ also died a natural death, and here's the fact that the idea of Christ dying helpless on a cross, yes, that, that is in Scripture, and he voluntarily did so, but at the same time, he was resurrected from the dead three days later before returning to heaven, which is an explicit show of divinity and power. We can see this at many times in the Bible, but for example, Luke 24, 7. Mundell also suggests that this death of Jesus was probably explained as an event that made Christ more powerful, which would appeal to Odin's worshippers. Skaldic poetry also depicted Christ as a, quote, victorious Viking king 
and emphasized God the Father's omnipotence. These depictions of the Christian God would appeal to a pagan Viking, for it was best to worship the strongest God, as that deity would bring victory. And in the Bible, we also see the idea of Christ being referred to as a conqueror. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says this, according to the New Revised Standard Version of the translation. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, we see a warlike Christ, not a gentle uh, lamb image of someone being crucified on a cross. In Revelation, Christ is depicted as a warlike king, defeating the armies of evil before the ultimate defeat of Satan. Christ's victory is in stark contrast, perhaps, to the eventual defeat and death of Odin and the other Norse gods in the apocalyptic battle of Ragnarok. So, and so that's an interesting thing where you can look at something. Yes, the, uh, a Norseman may, might look at the idea of cross dying, uh, Jesus dying on a cross. It's like, well, I don't want to follow that God. He died. But then you look at it, you look at it continually. You look at the whole picture. Christ was also resurrected. And in other parts of scripture, he is depicted as a warlike king. So these are some ideas that might also appeal to uh, a Norse mindset of wanting to worship the strongest God. You know, what may be stronger, according to this view, a Christian missionary might be able to, uh, to argue, what is stronger than a, a, a God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, but was then resurrected and will eventually come back as a warlike, as a warrior king, and defeat evil forever. And he won't die in that. So that is a very interesting thing. So, and and here comes another question. This this is tied in with this idea of, of a blending of, of Christianity and Norse religion. How did Christian converts view their previous Norse gods? Christopher Abram tells us that the new Christians did not necessarily stop altogether believing in the existence of pagan deities. However, they were urged to view them as false gods or even demons. Norse pagan figures could be molded into such Christian context or, quote, transferred to the sphere of superstition. As long as Christian dogma and essential belief was not violated, these, quote, demoted spirits, first they were considered as gods and now they're, they're evil spirits or demons, um, these demoted spirits could continue to exist in the culture but pose much less of a threat to actual Christian belief and practice. Some other concepts in Norse mythology were more difficult to translate into Christianity, and these beliefs took a little, perhaps a bit longer time to die out. One such concept was that of the previously mentioned Landvater, or land spirits. They were believed to bring luck and good harvests. Despite the banning of this practice in Norway, people continued to bring food to the Landvater, uh, perhaps into the early 1300s. Elsa Mundal notes that some other Norse practices were transferred to the Christian saints, removing them of their pagan nature. But the idea of a land spirits, that they're there wasn't a direct Christian saintly equivalent, and so this ban was harder to enforce. And again, here we go to the personal. Um, if if one believes that giving some food to this land spirit will increase my crops, 
that's a hard belief to let go of, right? So even if they're even if it's forbidden by law, and even if one is is converted to Christianity, but still has a bit of an inkling to to offer something to these land vetir, and there's no saintly figure to apply this practice to, um, turning away from this practice may be a little hard on a, on a personal level. And then there's the idea of another type of spirit in Norse mythology, the, the Norns. And these were female fate-shaping sh spirits. And although, the Nor although in Iceland the Norns were somewhat transformed into uh, evil witches, Transferring belief in them to a saint would have been difficult. According to Mundal again, this is because Christianity was a more, quote, male-oriented religion than Old Norse heathendom. And females were not in charge of Christian worship, destiny, and ritual. And even the Virgin Mary was not an appropriate fit to replace the, the, the Norns. So this concept of fate was still an important one, and it was directly tied to the Norn. Norn spirits. Anders Winroth would suggest that a pagan Christian binary is useless when talking about the early Christianization of Scandinavia. This is especially because there was likely no Norse forbidding of practicing baptism and other Christian rituals. Scandinavia had a lot of contact with Christian Europe well before the region was officially converted. And Christianity had come to Norse lands, for example, piecemeal through mercenaries, merchants, and other travelers before missionaries and Christian kings like Olaf Tryggvason could bring a more complete introduction to Christianity. Christian rulers were also able to legislate religion, as we saw earlier. Merchant and merchants and mercenaries would not have this authority, contributing to the religious blending of the Norse and Christian religions. It, it can be difficult to tell where this religious blending begins and ends. Burial practice was just one area in which religion was studying religion is very ambiguous. And this is because the practices associated with Christian burials and Scandinavian or Viking burials in general very, uh, are, are very, it's very hard to get a clear picture exactly. For example, certain identifiers such as burying instead of cremation, um, grave goods, and body placement do not always indicate a Christian gravesite. Some pagans were buried, and some had their heads towards the west, just like in a Christ typical Christian burial. Christians were also not supposed to be buried in mounds, and they were laid to rest with only basic items. But Anders Winroth mentions the, quote, Maman men, and he says that this person was, quote, buried in 971, or soon thereafter, in a richly furnished grave in Jutland which is in modern-day Denmark. The Maman man was, is buried in a mound with an axe and other rich items. So according to that, the, the criteria, he quote-unquote should be pagan. But yet he's also buried with a wax candle, and some say that this means that the Maman man was a Christian. He possibly became Christian before Christian cemeteries existed in his area, so the wax candle was probably meant to, to sanctify his grave. And so this is where it gets, gets difficult as well, where pagan and Christian symbols were also blended or at least shown side by side. Some amulets looked like a mix between Christ's cross and Thor's hammer. One woman was buried near Hedeby, modern-day Germany, in a wagon full of Thor's hammers, 
but she wore a cross necklace. In Jutland, a soapstone mold was found that would allow an artisan to make both cross and hammer pendants. These two facts seem to indicate that some Scandinavians were fine with blending Christian and pagan symbols. According to Winroth, pagan Vikings would have seen the cross during raids and trading trips. He also says that crosses started appearing in Scandinavia in the 500s, long before Christianity officially came. Thomas Dubois notes the 10th century Andreas cross on the Isle of Man, which was a place where Scandinavian and Celtic cultures merged. On one side of the Andreas cross is engraved an image of Odin and the mythical wolf Fenrir. On the other side is another figure, quote, treading on a serpent. It's reasonable to believe that this person is Christ, because in the Old Testament, he was prefigured when God predicted he would crush the tempting serpent's head. Uh, Christianity's impact in Norse culture can also be demonstrated through its literature. Oral tradition kept pagan mythology alive for centuries after Iceland's conversion to Christianity, and Christians eventually wrote it down. It can be hard to get a complete picture of these pre-Christian stories, simply because written sources like Snorri Sturluson's Poetic Edda were written well into Scandinavia's Christian era. Yet, Mundo believes that studying this literature can give insight into the religious blending we analyzed earlier, as it can give us a glimpse into the pre-Christian mindset. Mundell looks at an Icelandic work, what is known as a skaldic stanza, Lausavisa 22. And she looks at this to uh, look at the integration between Norse paganism and Christianity. In this stanza, a helmeted woman of God invites the Christian poet to heaven. This is very similar to a Norse Valkyrie, or a female spirit that chose fallen warriors and served them in Valhalla. Mundal suggests that this stanza could be combining the concepts of Valkyries and Christian angels. Mundal, however, does possibly admit uncertainty in this idea, because at the time of the poem's composition, Christian angels were considered male. Um, perhaps a clearer allusion to Christianity appears in the Voluspa, or the Cirrus' prophecy. This allusion appears at the end of the poem, after Ragnarok has destroyed the pagan gods. In stanza 65, there appears a, quote, powerful mighty one who rules over everything. Is this mighty person Jesus Christ? This interpretation does make sense, for Christ is described in Christian scripture as having the first place in everything, according to Colossians 1.18. Christopher Abram, that stanza 65, just mentioned, appears only in the Haugsbach version of the poem and not in the Codex Regius version. But regardless, he says, stanza 65 shows some Christian influence on Norse literature. He also looks at stanzas 36 and 39, which seem to suggest the Christian punishment of hell for sins such as murder and making untrue oaths. The Voluspa is also, descri also describes the destruction of the old gods, making way for, quote, something better. If stanza 65 did indeed refer to Jesus Christ, the poem is suggesting that the Norse ways would fall to, to Christianity. John Lindau suggests that the Christians likely saw Ragnarok as destroying pagan belief and worship. Even if the Mighty One is not Christ, the poem ends on a millennial note so to speak, in which a brand new world is created after the old one's destruction. We can look at this idea in Christian scripture in Revelation 21. 
which reminds us of the new earth and the new Jerusalem. The conversion of Scandinavia is an amazing study area. Though the Norse people had contact with Christianity for centuries, their land was only slowly converted. And even after their kingdoms or their rulers officially took up their cross to follow Christ, the new faith had to wrestle with remnants of Norse paganism that were still present in the social mindset. Not even Christian laws could completely stop the continued pagan practices during the region's early period of conversion. This is only one example which shows that regional Christianization throughout history was a process that took time to overtake the old culture. Well, that's it for today's episode, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you learned something from this episode and enjoyed listening to it. And until the next episode, I just want to sign off, and I want to say also, stay healthy and to keep well and take care of each other. The world is a, as we've seen in many times in history, this is not, this is nothing new, but it's pretty scary out there now. And um, I just want, I just want to remind you that we should all be caring and loving towards each other. And we should always be willing to listen to each other. Take care, keep healthy, and until next time, have a great one.